Hello, listeners. Welcome back to Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries Unity in Christ program. If this is your first time listening, my name is Christine Kim, and I'm the host of this program. During last week's broadcast, I shared about how a listener wanted an in depth understanding of Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, in which Jesus states, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. From last week, we will continue to discuss what his kingdom and his righteousness are. Do you remember what we discussed last week about God's kingdom? God's kingdom does not refer to a geographical country, but instead means royal power, kingship, dominion, or a rule, a place in which God's power or reign is fulfilled. When Jesus tells us to first seek God's kingdom, he is telling us to come within the reign of God. He is telling us to seek for his will to be done in our lives. Ultimately, this is confessing and acknowledging that we are no longer the master of our own lives, but confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord and master of our lives. During today's broadcast, I will speak about the second part of the verse regarding God's righteousness. We'll come back to share more after our first song.
But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Let's take a look at the second part of what Jesus told us to seek. In truth, to give a definition of what God's righteousness means is not easy. Even among many Bible scholars, there are many definitions of what this is and what it means. K. Arthur explains this in one of her many books, God's Will, and she says that righteousness in the original language is used in the correct and proper way just as it is. And righteousness, as God explains, is just people accepting and obeying. Ultimately, righteousness is God's attribute and is Himself. God asks us to give Him everything we are. By the sacrifice of Christ, we are no longer under the power of death, meaning we were once slaves to sin, but we have become free and are now under the reign of God. From death to eternity, from being a slave to being a child of Christ, the things we see are completely different than what they were before. As God's reign becomes fulfilled within us, we begin to live as children of His kingdom, and as His children, we live longing for His will. Seeking first for God's righteousness is desiring to live by God's will, and putting my utmost effort in living by the ways of the Word. This is living with an aspiration for God and desiring His holiness. Now let's examine what Jesus said to us before He told us to first seek His kingdom and righteousness. Jesus tells us not to worry. He tells us not to worry about what we will eat or what we will wear. This is because our Heavenly Father knows everything we need, and He generally provides to His children all that we need. He tells us that we are no longer masters of our own lives and to not worry about what to eat and what to wear. We are now God's children, and He continues to tell us, Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. In the scripture, the word first is very important. This is because he is telling us, in all of our ways, God must be first. And we need to change our priorities. He asks us to seek for his kingdom and to live by his will, to not worry about tomorrow and what we will eat and wear. That those must not be our first priority, but instead God's kingdom and righteousness. He is telling us to make those the most worthy things we do in our lives. If not, we will continuously live by seeking for our own needs and for our own will. God's kingdom is not of this world. But if we are tied down by the worldly things, we will lose His kingdom and righteousness. You are alive.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Timothy Keller of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. Today's topic is Justified by Faith, Part 2, based on the scriptures of Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 28. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Keller. That it is possible through the gospel to end your struggle for righteousness, validation, worth, and acceptability. What is it? It's free justification. Now, what is free justification? Let's break this down. Free, justified freely. It's in verse 24. And I'd like to show you that the gospel is talking about something that I have to say people can be around church or in church for years and years and not even understand. It's almost like free justification is a piece of furniture in the living room that's the main piece And people know a lot of things. Could you imagine coming into a big grand ballroom and we're going to have this incredible feast and there's chairs and there's, you know, you know, everything else. And there's, uh, you know, there's shelves and there's all the other pieces of furniture and there's a rug, but there's no table. And what I'm about to tell you is the table. If you want to understand free justification, you have to understand that on the one hand, it is far more than forgiveness and pardon. But on the other hand, distinctly different than moral goodness. It's more than pardon and it's distinct from being morally a good person. It's neither of those things. First, it's more than pardon. When most people hear, oh, you're justified by grace because of Jesus' death on the cross, right away they say, oh, we're forgiven. And that's true, but that's not what justification is. It's more, infinitely more. Forgiveness is basically a negative. It's mean, it means you're now free from liability to punishment. But justification is a positive. It's the bestowal of a status with all the rights and privileges and benefits pertaining thereunto. So as one person once said, Marcus Lone, years ago, to speak of of forgiveness is to say, you may go, you have been let off of your penalty. But to speak of justification is to say, you may come. You are welcome into all my love and my presence. 
And therefore, as great as forgiveness is, it's basically a negative. Justification is a positive. Forgiveness is you may go. I'm not going to punish you. But for justification is you may come. And you are welcome into all my love and presence. Why? Forgiveness is like getting a pardon so you're out of jail. And now you have the freedom of not being afraid that, you know, somebody's going to come around and arrest you and put you back in. But justification is so much more than that. It's not just a pardon from jail. It's more like getting the Congressional Medal of Honor bestowed upon you so that you, everyone salutes you. And so, every, uh, so you have now access to circles and corridors of acclaim and honor. And therefore, it's possible to understand that justification is infinitely, infinitely more. In fact, it's more than that. When you see me say that the righteousness of God comes to us, you might look at this as abstractly a perfect record. And it is a perfect record, but it's more than that because the righteousness of God has to be the righteousness of Christ. The righteousness of God is a performance record. Well, what, what, what did God ever do for us? He came to earth. And not only that, something happened even before. You know, one of the most amazing passages in the Bible, I don't understand it, and that's why I like it. Because there's, it seems like there's infinite depths behind it, and I, I, it's like a lozenge, you know. You put it in there, and it, you just, it just goes on and on and on. and never goes away. And it's a place in the book of Revelation where it says, Jesus Christ was slain before the foundation of the world. And it it seems to be saying that outside of history, on some kind of cosmic battlefield, before he ever entered into history and acted it out, Jesus Christ already on some cosmic battlefield faced faced down our enemies of sin and death and evil. And he was slain in order to free us. And that means what you're getting, what justification is... This perfect righteousness is not just a good, it's not just a goody two-shoes record. Jesus Christ was not just a good person. Jesus Christ was brave. Jesus Christ was bold. Jesus Christ was a man of courage, of nobility, of love. He sacrificed for us. We're talking about, we're talking about bravery beyond, above and beyond the call of duty. We're talking about self-sacrificial, uh, noble bravery. And he did all that for us on the, on the battlefield of the cosmos he won all this for us, and it's his medals, his decorations that now are all over us. And therefore, when 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him sin to be sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, what that has to mean is, on the cross, he was treated as if he'd done everything we had done, so that when we believe, we are treated as if we've done everything he's done, and what has he done? On the battlefield, what does he deserve? And all that's ours. And that's the reason why old Richard Hooker, the 17th century Anglican, has this marvelous statement in which he says, let it be counted as folly or frenzy or fury whatsoever. It is our comfort and our wisdom. We care for no knowledge in the world but this, that God has made himself our sin and that we have been made his righteousness. Therefore, we are in the sight of God the Father as is the very Son of God himself. Justification is infinitely more than pardon. But on the other hand, the other thing you have to know is this justification, this righteousness that comes upon us is not in any way a kind of moral goodness inside. 
Look, we have low church and we have high church. We have liturgical smells and bells. We have, you know, Bible-believing, evangelical, you know, sawdust trail churches. And we all have a problem with something. We actually don't believe the gospel. Let me, let me start with the evangelical types, all right? How do most people in these kinds of churches believe salvation works? Here's what they think. I have to really give my life to Jesus. I have to really surrender to Jesus. I have to really, I just have to be open and just unconditionally committed to Jesus. And then I say, oh Lord, I'm open to you. I'm committed to you. I'm going to live for you. I'm surrendering to you. Come into my life and save me and forgive me. Fill my life. You hear what you just did? I clean up my heart a little bit. I make myself righteous a bit. You know, I purge myself and cleanse myself of these other kinds of feelings and I I surrender myself and I put myself in a committed state and then God comes in and does the rest. In other words, I make myself a little righteous and then God comes in and does the rest. And you know, there's a high church version of that. There's a liturgical version of that is I take the sacraments and I give myself to that and then, you know, so I'm making myself available and I take the supper and I'm baptized and then God comes in and does the rest. But in chapter 4, verse 5, we'll get to in a couple weeks, but it's right nearby here in this passage. Paul actually goes so far as to say that God justifies the ungodly. And that means that when you're justified, when you're absolutely righteous and loved, absolutely accepted in yourself, you're absolutely unworthy, absolutely sinful. You're ungodly. And therefore, there is absolutely nothing in you that is the basis for this justification. Nothing. Now, people have a lot of problem with that. And they say, oh my goodness. They say, I've got to be good a little bit. I mean, I mean, and I had somebody once say to me, if I really believe what you say, that salvation is absolutely by free grace, and I don't have to be good at all, I don't even have to screw up my heart into a kind of, you know, you know good state at all. So if I, if I believe what you believe, I have no incentive to live a good life. And by the way, there's plenty of people that say, have said that to me over the years. If I really believed that I was totally saved, had nothing to do with how I lived, it was completely free, then I'd have no incentive to live a good life. And here's the proper, I think, response. If when you lose all fear of punishment, you also lose your incentive for living a good life, then the only incentive you had to live a good life was fear. See, if when you lose your fear, you lose your incentive to be good, then the only incentive you had to be good was the fear. And here's the ironic thing. The fear is selfish. Fear is always selfish. Because I might lose, I might, this might happen, that might happen, I better be good. Well, what is goodness? Well, goodness is unselfish living, unselfish service to God, unselfish service to the poor, unselfish service to my neighbor. I'm scared that I might be lost unless I'm good. And what is goodness? Being unselfish. But don't you realize that's incredibly selfish? When you live a good life so that God will bless you and take you to heaven, it's by definition not good. Because it's all for you. All of it's for you. You're not helping the poor. You're helping yourself. You're not helping God. You're helping yourself. This is the reason why the Belgic Confession, an old Reformation document from the 17th century, puts it like this. Far from making people cold toward living in a holy way, justifying faith so works within them that apart from it they will never do a thing out of love for God, but only out of love for themselves and fear of being condemned. Did you hear that? Let me tell you what that's saying. Put on your thinking cap and don't laugh too much when I tell you. 
If you think your good deeds are good, if you think your unselfish good deeds are good, they're no good. In other words, if you think they're good and therefore God owes you something, they're not good by definition. They're not good by your own definition. Your selflessness is really selfishness. But if you say, oh, my good deeds are worthless. I need to be saved by grace. I am saved by grace. Now I want to please God. I want to resemble God. I want to delight God. I want to get near God. Well, how do I do that? By serving him. By serving other people. And here's the real thing. If you think your good deeds are good, they're no good. But if you think your good deeds are absolutely worthless and you're saved by grace, that makes your deeds good. So if you think they're good, they're no good. If you think they're no good, they're good. They start to get good. Because you see, when you realize they're worthless and therefore you're doing them just to please God, they're actually for God. They're actually for the person that you're you're helping. You see why C.S. Lewis said the reason he knew that Christianity must be true is when he actually looked at it, he realized that nobody could have ever thought this up. And you see the reason why Richard Hooker would say, let it be counted as folly or frenzy or fury whatsoever. This is our comfort and wisdom. We care for no other knowledge in the world but this. Now, let's move to the final point. And here's the final point. If you don't understand that this justification, this free justification is on the one hand infinitely more than pardon, but separate and distinct from being morally good in yourself. If you don't understand that, it's like having that banquet without a table. And what I've seen people over the years come in and out of churches like this. They understand forgiveness and they understand moral goodness, but they don't understand free justification. They understand that if I confess my sins, I have a forgiving God, Jesus died on the cross, and I get forgiven. And now that I'm forgiven, I need to really live for him. And that's how most people think. So people come in and out of the church, they cycle over the years. You know, they come in as kids and they cycle out as teenagers. They come in as young adults when they start to have problems and they cycle out of it as little slightly older adults. They come in as they get old. What's going on? They try hard to live like they should and they, something makes them fail or they just sort of fade away and then things go wrong. They know they need God. Then they come back in and they recommit and they ask for forgiveness. They ask for forgiveness and they try their best to live a moral life, a good life. And then they sort of slip away, and then they have to ask for forgiveness again, and that's how they go on and on and on, and they never get to this at all. They actually never become Christians. Because a Christian is someone who is justified freely by faith through his blood. Here's what I'd like you to do to help you break through and break out of that cycle. I want you to stop looking for a minute at your sins. Now, don't anybody go home and blog. Tim Keller says your sins don't matter. Okay. Listen, if you're sinning, I would like you to stop and get forgiveness. Let, that's, let the record show. But I want you to consider this, that Pharisees are very concerned about their sins. Pharisees, self-justifying, moral, legalistic, miserable people. Pharisees, when they sin, they're very upset. They repent. They confess their sins. And when they're all done, they're still Pharisees. They're not Christians. Here's what will make you a Christian. Don't look at your sins. Look at your boasting. Look at what you boast in. Look at the things that you are your justification. Look at the things that you look at and say, that justifies my existence. That validates me. That's what makes me worthy. See, Paul says, where is boasting? The justification by free justification destroys it. Well, then let's find it. 
What makes you a Christian is not so much that you repent of your sins. You should repent of your sins, but that could just make you just another Pharisee or just another person in that cycle. No, what makes you a Christian is you repent of your justification, your false justification, your false righteousness. Nathan Coles, 1730s and 40s, a Connecticut farmer, tells a story about how he was converted listening to the great evangelist George Whitfield. And he says, my hearing him preach gave me a heart wound. And by God's blessing, my old foundation was broken up and I saw that my righteousness could not save me. By God's grace, my old foundation was broken up and I saw that my righteousness could not save me. That's what makes you a Christian, not just a person trying harder, confession, trying harder, confession. Because free justification is infinitely more than just pardon, but radically different than just trying harder. So for example, this week, yesterday actually, I was at a retreat and I heard a man get up and give a testimony. Let me close with this testimony because this tells it all. He says, three years ago, I was at this retreat. This retreat is an annual. And at that retreat, I became a Christian. I gave my life to Christ. But when you talked, when you, and he went through and explained, he says, he, he broke through and understood the gospel. In other words, he had had an identity, a justification based in his performance And because of the gospel, seeing what Jesus Christ had done for him, he shifted his trust. He repented of his old justification, and he he rooted his justification. He rooted his identity in the costly, infinitely costly grace of Christ. And it changed his life. Now, here's what he said. That was three years ago. He says, I want to give you this testimony this year because four years later, I want you to know I'm in a job. I'm in a field that we used to call wealth management but we now call wealth preservation and survival. (laughs) And he says, I want you to know, and a lot of you do know, because he was talking to a a group of people who are mainly in that business, I have lost an enormous amount of money this year. And he had lost an enormous amount of money, and a lot of the other people had, and he was really, he, he he was saying, I lost an incredible amount of money. And here's what I want you to know. I've never been happier in my life. And he said, because if this had happened four years ago, if this year, if the Great Recession happened four years ago, when my justification was still in my, my performance, he says, I know where the vodka bottle is and I would have drank myself, I, would, I just would have driven myself right into the ground. But what has changed? His wealth used to be his justification. His wealth used to be his righteousness. And now it's just wealth. It's only wealth. And you, if you want to become a Christian, you've got to say... These aren't just my children. These are my justification. This is not just my wealth or my career. It's my justification. And therefore, you will not be impervious to the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. But when he looked to Jesus Christ, not just as his forgiveness, but as his crown and as his glory and as his righteousness, he was able to handle anything. Are you? Have you figured this out? Have you figured out what it means to be a Christian is not just to repent of your sins, but to repent of your false righteousness? to repent of your false, your false justifications, to transfer your trust from that to what Jesus has done. And dear Christian friends, those of you who say, well, I do believe this and I do understand this and I know what free justification is. If you really, really believed in the heart of hearts what you know with your head, would you really be anxious? See, won't you admit, in many of your cases, though you're a Christian, your wealth is not just your wealth. Your beauty isn't just your beauty. Your youth isn't just your youth. Your family is not just your family. They're your righteousness. But now, a perfect righteousness.
is revealed apart from the law for your performance. It's a righteousness that comes upon you. It's a righteousness that, that alights on you. It's, it comes to you. And it's the end of your struggle. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord God, that this gospel is so counterintuitive. It is so different. But now, for the first time and the last time in history, a righteousness is revealed apart from the law. And we ask that everybody hearing this message would see what that means for him or her. And I ask that for the people who have known about all the other chairs in the room, all the other kind of Christian doctrines and teachings and stories, but have never understood free justification, never had the table in the center of their understanding, I pray, Lord, that now it would be there and that they would begin to sit down and eat at it. And for all those of us who believe in free justification with our head, but it hasn't really worked into our hearts, so we're, fi- we're still bound in shallows and misery, miseries. We're, we're still anxious. We're still angry. We're still running scared. I pray that the gospel would change our lives absolutely thoroughly, not just relate us to you, but transform every aspect of our lives. Thank you that this is possible. Thank you for speaking to us tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Now you can find all the programs of Heart and Soul on podcast. You can easily play this week's or past week's programs, or you can even download them to your device just in a few minutes. Try to search for Heart and Soul at your iTunes store now. Following is a program titled, The Lord is My Shepherd, where we learn about our Lord who is our shepherd through Psalm chapter 23. Welcome back, everyone. This is Jim Hughes with The Lord is My Shepherd. We are a people who are not afraid, even if we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Why? Because the Lord is with us. We don't need to be afraid when we walk through the shadow of death in our lives. We can trust that God leads us through the valley to bring us to green pastures on the top of the mountain. His thoughts toward us are not thoughts of disaster, but of peace and salvation. But this reality is out of reach if it is just in words. We recognize it only by experience. Through experience, those passing through the valley of death, led by God our shepherd, can have an absolute faith in the shepherd. The sheep undergoing the experience of being led through the valley of the shadow of death can eventually confess, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Today I want to think about this statement from verse 4 with you. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. What kind of image do you see when you think about a rod? Do you think of the top of the rod as bent like a round hook, a shepherd's crook, and the bottom straight stick? Did it look like a stick of Moses or Aaron? And what about this stick? What did it look like in your mind's eye? And is the stick that you envision as a rod just the length of a forearm or a little longer? In fact, we do not know exactly what a shepherd's stick or bar looked like in Moses' and David's times. There are no remaining relics. So some scholars say that shepherds were each carrying a stick and a rod. Others say that they carried only one of them. And yet other scholars declared that the rod has the same meaning as the staff. In most of the Western paintings depicting scenes from the Bible, the stick that Moses or a shepherd carries is a tall stick. The Hebrew word shebet means a stick or a bar, translated to the English term rod. The Hebrew word mishenau means a stick or a staff. This verse, Psalm 23, verse 4, in the English translations of the Bible, typically has the order of these instruments as rod and staff. The original language uses two distinctly different words with similar meanings, perhaps to emphasize the different uses as shepherd's tools. 
a shepherd who is leaving the area where they live and driving a flock of sheep to spend the summer at the height of the plateau cannot bring too much luggage. He is just carrying minimal necessities. So the most important things to him are a rod and a staff. A rod is mainly used for offense. When the ferocious beasts appear, the shepherd throws the rod to chase them off. And the shepherds do a lot of practice to be able to accurately throw the rod in such an emergency. So the rod acts as the right hand of the shepherd in many cases. An interesting point here is that the Hebrew word shebet, meaning a stick or a bar, translated to the English word rod, can be further understood by noting that elsewhere in scripture it is used to describe a stick for punishments, a stick to fight, and a bar for walking. So, as used by the shepherd, this stick is for disciplining the sheep, as well as for attacking to fend off an enemy. The shepherd gives a warning to the sheep by throwing such a stick. For example, he sees the sheep eating grass they should not eat, or he sees the sheep going toward dangerous areas. The sheep hit by the thrown stick will return back to their group. If the sheep ignore the warning and try to continue the behavior not allowed by the shepherd, the shepherd must take a corrective next step. Sometimes the shepherd must take extreme action with sheep that refuse to obey and thereby place themselves in danger. The next step is to break the legs of the sheep. This is clearly a harsh experience for the sheep and the shepherd. However, the shepherd takes such an action for the safety of the sheep. The shepherd who breaks his sheep's legs also resets those legs, wraps their legs again, and carries that sheep on his neck, keeps the sheep always around him to care for him. Because of their broken legs, the sheep receive special care from the shepherd and spends time healing at the place nearest the shepherd. After their legs have recovered, that sheep will always stay near to the shepherd and follow him. These cases do not happen frequently, and most of the sheep recognize the direction given by the thrown stick and obey the shepherd. So the rod of the shepherd is a stick to attack the enemy and to punish in order to correct his sheep. What then is the meaning of the staff? Mishenau in the Hebrew is translated in English a staff. The word is derived from the Hebrew word mishan. This means a protector, a guardian to lean on. So a staff has the function of a stick to protect and help the sheep. We picture this as, as the longer instrument, perhaps the height of the shepherd or even a slightly taller. The shepherd uses it to drive the sheep and control their direction, gently pushing the body of the sheep with the staff. It never hurts the sheep, but leads them and steers them to the right way. In addition, using the staff, the shepherd can remove thorns and dirt attached itself to the body of the sheep. 
W. Philip Keller, author of the book A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23, understood the shepherd's rod as symbolic of the Word of God and his staff as symbolizing the Holy Spirit of God. That is because, like the rod of the shepherd, the Word of God is a tool to attack Satan and to recognize and correct disobedience in our souls and lead us to the right path. In addition, the Holy Spirit, like the staff of a shepherd, leads, protects, guides us in the way we should go. I believe this is the proper interpretation. As pictured in Psalm 23, the shepherd is carrying a rod and a staff together. However, a rod and a staff have their own roles, respectively. The shepherd leads the sheep and protects them using the rod and the staff as needed. So David confessed, Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The meaning of comfort is to relieve and to console his mind. In its original language, the word translated comfort can mean to sustain through seasons of regret, mourning, repentance, or sadness. With a rod and a staff, God lets us regret, lets us repent, lets us mourn, and yet be consoled. Isn't this a beautiful example of God's wonderful grace? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, Jesus said in the Gospel of Matthew. We are blessed because our shepherd God leads us with his rod and his staff. Today, let's set our hearts to dwell in him who leads us. Please listen again next time as we continue with The Lord is My Shepherd. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see.
When Jesus told us to seek first His kingdom and righteousness, He not only commands us to keep these things, but Jesus Himself lived by them, setting an example of how we should live. Every moment of Jesus' life here on earth, He lived under God's sovereign reign, seeking for His will. He sought passionately to live by His Father's will, to live by His Father's plan, and thought about the desires of His Father and acted upon it. How much do we live by seeking for God's will? Let's think about how much we are living for ourselves and how much we worry for the well-being of our lives. In actuality, whose reign am I living under? Who is the master of my life? But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. 
I pray that all of our listeners may live seeking God and God alone, and passionately seek His will first. Thank you for listening, as it has been my pleasure. I hope we meet again this time next week, and God bless. My hope is built on nothing less Than Jesus' blood and righteousness I dare not trust the sweetest frame But wholly trust in Jesus' name Christ alone Cornerstone Weak made strong In the Savior's love Through the storm He is Lord Lord of all When darkness seems To hide His face I rest on His unchanging grace In every high and stormy gale My anchor holds within the veil